0: The U.S. war machine may seem to some to be unstoppable, but there are always those with the courage to resist, to organize. Today we speak with an anti-war activist who has dedicated his life to this fight. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm Brian Becker, and I'm joined by Brian Wilson. Brian is a Vietnam veteran. He is a writer, a lawyer, a peace activist. On September 1st, 1987, Brian Wilson lost his legs while participating in a peaceful act of civil disobedience at a railroad track at the Concord Naval Weapons Station to block the shipment of weapons to the terrorist Contra fighters in Nicaragua. His latest book is Don't Thank Me for My Service, My Vietnam Awakening to the Long History of U.S. Lies. Brian Wilson, welcome. Thank you. Brian, I've known you for quite a while, for a couple of decades and of you for even longer. We've worked together on issues like peace for Korea, yeah, and working with others to try to hold the U.S. government officials and others accountable for war crimes committed against the Korean people between 1950 and 53. But that's only a part of the story. You have been involved in almost every mass movement, and sometimes movements that were not so massive, demanding peace and exposing U.S. foreign policy. I want to read to you from an article in the Los Angeles Times. It's from September 3rd, 1987. It's an Associated Press article. And I want to just frame this conversation with you by reading a little bit from this article 33 years ago, because it sort of sets the stage for what many younger people might not know about, but those of us who are older certainly do know about. Here it is. Angry demonstrators returned Wednesday to the Concord Naval Weapons Station, where a Vietnam veteran protesting U.S. arms shipments to Central America lost both legs a day earlier when he knelt in front of an oncoming munitions train. Standing directly over the blood spattered rails where the train struck 47 year old S. Brian Wilson, A stream of speakers from activist organizations blasted the Navy and law enforcement authorities for failing to stop the train. Quote, that train that ran into us was a death train, said Duncan Murphy, who was next to Wilson as the train approached. It was quite obvious that there was no intent to stop. Murphy and another man jumped out of the way just before the train struck Wilson. Quote, they were thinking it was a game of chicken, close quote, Murphy said. Brian Wilson gave his legs to stop the war, said Robert LaSalle, a theology teacher for the Catholic Diocese of Oakland. And then the article goes on to quote your wife then of 11 days, Holly Round, and Representative Ron Dellums, were an aide to him who came to show solidarity. It's so incredible, Brian, but let's just go back. What actually happened 33 years ago? And was it simply that you were kneeling in front of an oncoming munitions train and it failed to stop? Or was there more to this?
1: Well, we had been vigiling at that base since June 10th, 1987. So this was September 1st. This was the day I had Told the Navy and the press that I was going to take my position on the tracks with two other veterans to at least stop the train for a few minutes. Now, I had been an installation security officer in the military, so I had been through a lot of trainings about protecting military bases and security. And I had been at the base all summer with the vigil where they were already stopping trucks because trucks were carrying weapons on a road parallel to the tracks. So there were both trains and trucks carrying weapons to the Navy ships where they were being loaded to head for Central America, Sacramento River, which was right next to the base. So the speed limit was five miles an hour. The legal speed limit for the train was five miles an hour. There were always two spotters standing on the front of the locomotive on the cowcatcher platform to make sure the tracks were clear and we had told the base in advance several days in advance and again on that day that we were beginning our 40-day fast on the tracks as long as we were not in jail we expected to go to prison or at least jail There was a big sign right next to where we were vigiling that said the penalty for obstructing the movement of federal weapons on the trains was one year in prison and a $5,000 fine. So we knew what the penalty was. And the train had always stopped. There had been actions at Concord Naval Weapons Station really since, since the Vietnam War in the late 60s. So there was a lot of history of demonstrations at this pace 20 years earlier Uh, so I wasn't really worried about the train not stopping I mean its protocol required it to stop and required police to arrest us before the train moved and it's a five mile an hour train so I was never really worried about violence against my body I was concerned that I might be damaged I might be injured while I was being arrested So we took our position on September 1st. We took our position about 10 o'clock in the morning, and the first train came just before noon. And I actually have no memory of what happened after about 11 o'clock that morning. But what happened was, and I had 45 friends there who were supporting us and witnessing the arrests, what we thought were going to be three arrests. And I woke up, actually, three days later in the hospital. I had no idea what had happened. Not only did I lose my legs below the knee, both of them, but I lost my right frontal lobe. I had a huge skull fracture and brain injury. I mean, I literally lost. My right frontal lobe was destroyed. And I had a lot of broken bones. But I was in shock because I had no memory, and it certainly was inconceivable that the train would move past our blockade without having us being arrested beforehand. Now, two and a half weeks later, while I was in the hospital, I had a call from an FBI agent who had just been fired. He was in Peoria, Illinois, Jack Ryan, and he had, I learned, had refused to investigate the Veterans Fast for Life of the year before, which was on the Capitol steps, it was a 47-day water-only fast protesting the same policies in Central America, Ronald Reagan, that we had been put on the domestic terrorist list, which uh, I was stunned to find out, and that he had been fired for refusing to investigate us as domestic terrorist suspects. Well, that was another piece of the p- puzzle of uh, the motivation for the authorities to basically an attempt assassination or an attempt to obliterate the blockade, that idea never occurred to me. <laughs> but again, you know, the US has been a lawless society from its very origin, so I guess in a way it fits the pattern of kind of a lawlessness when any activity is in the way of US policy. All methods are accessible to the government to make sure that they succeed. Well, there were three train crew members, two spotters on the front and the locomotive engineer at the rear of the locomotive. The train did not stop after it struck us. And the FBI, who examined the one video that was being taken by my friend, Bob Spitzer, who was a psychiatrist who like to document civil disobedience actions, and he was going to document the arrest. When the FBI examined that video, they said the train was accelerating at 17 miles an hour at the point of impact, which was more than three times the speed limit. The train did stop, but about 600 feet further down the tracks. It was only a, a locomotive and two, two boxcars full of munitions. So. The whole thing was bizarre as well as a crime and it took me probably a week lying in the hospital bed with people, my wife and a few close friends, telling me what happened because I really couldn't believe it. It was just totally beyond comprehension for me. Now, I was lying in bed with two feet sticking up at the end of the bed So And I had phantom pain in the feet, so I I didn't comprehend right away that I'd lost my legs. It was just so hard to believe. But I was in the hospital 29 days in John Muir Hospital in Walnut Creek, very good care. And it took me a few months to get back on my feet, on my prosthetic feet. As I got better health-wise, I just continued... Doing what I always had been doing.
0: Brian Wilson, the train was going 17 miles an hour. The speed limit was five miles an hour. You were on the tracks. You had notified the Navy that you were going to be on the tracks. And we were very visible. And you were very visible, and there were two spotters. So somebody decided to run you over. Correct. That was a decision. Correct. Who was that?
1: Do you know? Well, there were three layers of chain of command between the train crew and the commander of the base. So we know the commander of the base was involved in the decision, but we don't know whether somebody in Washington, the Concord Naval Weapons Station was in the Navy Sea Systems Command. So we tried to find out whether the Navy Sea Systems Command had been involved at all in the decision. But we were not able to establish that convincingly. But we know that the commander ordered the train not to stop that day. And one of the reasons given was that they were afraid we were going to hijack the train, believe it or not. And there's 350 armed Marines protecting that base. And there were about 15 of them standing very near our vigil. So there was no conceivable way that even if we were of the mind to hijack a train, what were we going to do with it? It's only three miles of track. It goes from the bunker to the port. And so, you know, when you get the terrorist label, I guess they have a lot of imagination about what that means. But there was a Navy report that came out on October 2nd, 1987, that actually was fairly accurate in blaming the Navy for what the Navy called an accident, but it was really an attempted murder. It was certainly an assault, but nobody was ever punished. The report said that I expected to be arrested. The train was speeding more than three times its speed limit. The spotters could see us for 600 feet, and it only took 120 feet to stop the train, and they never attempted to ever stop it. Except It was just an open throttle. There was no effort to stop, which shows the intent. Uh, That was their orders, not to stop. So, again, it was another... Huge learning experience for me. Vietnam had been the first huge learning experience where I discovered the total lawlessness and in Vietnam I I was kind of naive like most people and I very quickly learned that we were just involved in a mass murder machine. That's where I had my awakening. Well, here was another experience where I suffered the plight of what people all over the world suffer all the time when they're standing in the way of US foreign policy.
0: Brian, the fact that you were on the domestic terrorism list. I mean, a lot of people today don't know about this, this part of American history. It didn't take much to get put on that list. Right. <laughs> I was interviewed by the Center for Investigative Reporting because around that same time period they had through a Freedom of Information records request, a public records request, discovered that I had been also put on an anti-terrorism or domestic terrorism list, and I was being surveilled constantly by FBI agents. I never knew of it at the time. It came out because an FBI agent, the reason it surfaced in the Freedom of Information request is the FBI agent or agents who were telling me at that time and keeping these careful records, They protested that this investigation was in violation of the reforms that came from the church hearings in the mid-1970s about the use of the FBI and police and law enforcement against political activists. So they protested, and their protest somehow made it into a file, and then when the Center for Investigative Reporting got the public records request, it turned out that, you know, indeed— I was being surveilled. Now, the reason I got on that list, as it turned out, was that my picture was in the Washington Post because I was the speaker at a press conference for a demonstration that we were planning at the second Reagan inauguration, January 20th, 1985. In other words, it was just your picture was enough. Oliver North saw the picture and then they created through this interagency task force, this list of domestic terrorists or potential ones. So probably tons of people were on that list. I mean, you didn't have to do anything to become like spied on and surveilled as a domestic terrorist.
1: Correct. I mean, and the four fasters of which I was one on the Capitol steps from September 1st, October 17th, 1986, the year before, we were just sitting on the Capitol steps drinking water with a sign. Stop the war in Central America. I mean, (laughs) we were just sitting there drinking water. So that put us on the terrorist list because the FBI said later that they had discovered there were 500 locations around the country where people were demonstrating in solidarity with the fast against Reagan's policies in Central America. So, of course, it's all just insane criminality and imperialism as it has been for 400 years, but it's we, we learn from experiences that it's for real, the bullshit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The bullshit. That's right. I want to play an audio clip. This is Ronald Reagan speaking March 14th, 1986. It's him explaining his support for the Contras in Nicaragua. We're speaking to you from Nicaragua. You live in Nicaragua now again, when the train ran over you and created all of those injuries, including severing your legs, you were protesting against the weapon shipments to the Contras. Of course, the U.S. government mined the harbors in Nicaragua and were brought before the world court and found guilty, to which the U.S. said, we don't care, guilty of war crimes. Anyway, and Reagan, of course, explained that the Contras were the moral equivalent of the founding fathers, which which may or may not be true. Yeah, it may be true. The
1: founding fathers are pretty bad.
0: Yeah, the founding fathers were pretty bad. I mean, so comparing the Contras to a bunch of slave owners was poignant. Anyway, let's hear uh, Ronald Reagan speaking again. This is about a little bit more than a year before whoever was in charge ordered that train to run over you. Let's listen.
1: What I want to do today is simply address some of the questions that people have about the freedom fighters, the so-called Contras. A lot of people who support the Contras never call them Contras, by the way, because Contra is short for counter-revolutionary. And counter-revolutionary used to mean pro somoza It was a Sandinista insult. And by the way I see it, Somoza's been gone a long time the revolution that toppled him then became a communist coup and so the contras so called are against it so i guess in a way they are counter revolutionary and god bless them for being that way and i guess that makes them contras and so it makes me a contra too
0: yeah brian he was the number one contra that's right let's just help our audience understand especially for folks who don't really understand what actually happened the the sandinistas came to power on July 19th, 1979, that same year, the people in Iran rose up in a, in a people's revolution and overthrew another U.S. puppet dictator like Somoza in Nicaragua as the Shah of Iran. That was a pretty eventful year. The U.S. felt the empire was crumbling. All these people wanted to be free of the empire and rising up and having revolutions and some were religious, and some were socialist, and some were social democratic, and some were communist, and some weren't really ideological at all, but they wanted to be free people. And Ronald Reagan's calling the Contras the freedom fighters. Just, again, for perhaps younger people who weren't obviously alive then, how central Central America was, and how central Nicaragua was the efforts by the U.S. using all available means, every terrorist means, to stop this freedom
1: movement? Yeah, well, the Democrats uh, supported embargoes and starvation, and the Republicans supported bullets. Anything to stop a good example from influencing other impoverished peoples around the world. But Central America was very important because Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, as well as Nicaragua, there was a lot of restive, restive activity in, among the population because they'd been repressed for so long. And Nicaragua's revolution, which succeeded in July of 79, was very important in motivating other groups in El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala especially, and just as Cuba had been a, a motivation for Nicaragua. And, of course, Cuba is still being besieged by the U.S., and so is Nicaragua still being besieged by the U.S. Just last year, the U.S. adopted a plan to destabilize Nicaragua because it was a repressive society, which, of course, it's not. I mean, I I live here. I live here partly because it's the safest country in Central America. Uh, But they came up with a plan of RAIN, responsive assistance in Nicaragua, R-A-I-N with millions of dollars going to the U.S. Agency for International Development to overthrow the Sandinista government. And they work through the NGOs, which are now almost all been weaponized because they get most of their large grants from governments. And the NGOs, you know, basically are in conformity with the basic ideals of U.S. foreign policy. So we expect to have another possible crisis this year, which is election year in Nicaragua. But again, Nicaragua was very inspirational to all of Latin America, of a people's movement that actually brought literacy and healthcare and education to millions of people who before had not had any access to healthcare or education. So, you know, the United States, just like Vietnam, Vietnam was a movement from the Vietnamese to be free of Western powers. And that was not acceptable. It was going to be a bad example for, or a good example for other people, a bad example for the United States, because then it would be harder for the United States to dominate other people into passivity. I learned that the first month I was in Vietnam. I was like, holy to- holy Toledo, what what have I, why have was I so ignorant and so brainwashed? Well, We know how easy that is. At any rate, Nicaragua still remains the most progressive country, in certainly in Central America and maybe in all of Latin America. It's kind of an amazing country that continues to receive terrible reports about its society from U.S. press and U.S. politicians. I think Kamala Harris called the Nicaraguans either terrorists or tyrants. These people, of course, as you know, don't know anything except whatever they learned in the Cold War, which has morphed into a huge military-industrial intelligence congressional complex that makes huge amounts of money on destabilizing people so that the people of the United States will continue to pay money into the military.
0: We don't have that much time, but I want you to talk a little bit more about Vietnam, because as an organizer with the Answer Coalition and the anti-war movement during the Iraq War It became clear to us, as we would have anticipated, having learned some of the lessons from Vietnam, that the people who came back from Iraq and then Afghanistan, they went to those wars as true believers. It was after September 11th, a number of people volunteered because they thought, my country is under attack, I have to do the right thing, I'm willing to, to die for my country. Then they get to Iraq to fight terrorism and they find out, hey, we are the terrorists. We're the ones who are terrorizing all these Iraqis. Uh, We're terrorizing them every day. We're doing things to them that are unimaginable. And we 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old people are, you know, having come, many of them from certainly not that environment, perhaps a sheltered environment, so traumatized by the role they played, they became not only like a voice against the war, they became leaders against the war. They became like the most, you know, dedicated Fighters against war and against these wars. And as a consequence, people really transformed. And so many people for Vietnam, that was all true. I mean, so many, I would say tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even more, the people who actually, like yourself, went to Vietnam thinking one thing, came out thinking something else. And not only thinking something else, dedicating their lives to the struggle against war. Just again, Help our audience, perhaps, who doesn't have this experience, understand what happened to you and to others who were sent to Vietnam, how it became transformative, and how it shaped your thinking.
1: Well, first of all, you realize you've been betrayed. Your uh, whole life, you've been told by your parents and your community and your schools and your church and the politicians about what we would now call American exceptionalism. So we never even understood the true history of our own country. But we were brainwashed to think it was a superior country, superior to all other countries. So when I realized that we were the terrorists and we were the invaders and the killers, I went through, you know, a psychological crisis, actually. I was 27 in Vietnam. I was drafted when I was 25, which is old for being drafted. And I was for the war. Initially, when I was 25, I was actually in law school when I got drafted. But it didn't take long for me to realize the whole thing was just a mass murder machine. And the Vietnamese were so authentic. And I considered myself, after five weeks in country, I considered myself like an ideological robot. And the cognitive dissonance was so intense, I was suicidal for uh, probably a week. How could it be that everything I've been told was a lie about Vietnam, about our history? It's hard to grasp that everything you've been taught is mythological or outright lies or deceit. And one of the ways that I've dealt with it and and many vets have dealt with it is you go through a period of atonement. I would call it atonement. You want to make right what the United States has been doing wrong because you were brainwashed and therefore I had an identity that was phony, an exceptional white male from the United States. That's a phony identity and to, to live with that, knowing that you had participated in killing other people and destroying another culture, you kind of you can either get drunk and commit suicide or you can begin to act in ways that antidote, the brainwashing that the society has been imbued with for 400 years and certainly for since World War II. And so you start acting, you start speaking, you start writing, you start organizing. And it's not just political for the society, it's therapeutic for yourself. It's kind of like, how could I have been so stupid and so brainwashed, but I'm not going to be brainwashed anymore,
0: Brian? You turn eighty this year on July fourth.
1: Yep, can't believe it.
0: Born on the fourth of July, of course. There's the famous book and movie with featuring Ron Kovic, who's right. an anti-war veteran. He was literally born on the fourth of July. Yep, you were literally born on the fourth of July. You're eighty years old. You know, for the last thirty-three years, you've had to sort of navigate on what you call third world legs. Explain that term. How did you come up with that phraseology, actually?
1: Well, when I was in Nicaragua in 86 and 87, before I got run over by the train, I was probably, had been here four or five times. I had visited almost 500 amputees in hospitals and in small towns that lost their legs because of the contra- war and the mines that the US was giving the countries, And there was a moment in nineteen eighty seven when I came out of a hospital, this is before the train, I had just visited in that one day, a couple hundred amputees, bed after, bed after bed after bed after bed after bed, up in the northern war zone. And I sat outside crying, sitting on a rock, it was outside saying, their legs are worth just as much as mine, not thinking that I was going to lose my legs. But I realized that now, after September 1st, now that I'm legless, I've joined the people around the world who've lost their legs in the struggle for justice, for sovereignty, for anti-imperialism. And so I called myself a person living on third-world legs.
0: When the people who you were visiting in the hospital who had lost their legs, the amputees, you mentioned because of mines. The U.S. was planting mines and giving mines to the Contras. That's why people were losing their legs. And the U.S. was the only country to not sign the international accord to ban land mines. And the reason they didn't want to sign is they said, we might need it for Korea. And I was like, okay, that's perfect. The U.S. obliterated Korea. The main complaint of American pilots by the end of 1951, two years before the war ended, was there was nothing left to bomb in Korea because every structure taller than one story had been destroyed by American bombing. And the U.S. doesn't want to give up landmines, you know, so many amputees around the world because they might want to use them again in Korea. I mean, really, really something. And the fact that the U.S. is so loathsome to sign an accord saying, let's everyone ban landmines. It just speaks volumes, doesn't it?
1: Well, the United States is just a shithole country. That's all I can say.
0: (laughs) Very, very well. (laughs) I I understand your your language. And let me ask you, as as we start to close out, Brian, and I hope we could keep this conversation going. You have a new book, I encourage everyone to look for your books. In preparation for our discussion today, I reread The Blood on the Tracks, your book from 2011. Your latest book is Don't Thank Me for My Service, My Vietnam Awakening to the Long History of U.S. Lies. Just real quick, give the audience a preview of that book, why you wrote it, and what's your main point?
1: Well, originally, I was motivated to write it because in 2012, I think... President Barack Obama, I call him, agreed to, I think it was a 10 or 12 year study of the history of Vietnam to, you know, to glorify the war. It was a revisionist effort. And I think it was $60 million and it was going to be written by people at the Pentagon. And I thought, well, at least I can just sit down and start writing a few pages that I would want young people to read as an antidote to whatever the Pentagon was gonna write in this new effort that was started under Obama. So I started out just writing I didn't even have a plan except that I wanted to talk about the phony history of the US originally and then leading to the war, the actual war in country in Vietnam and all the publicity and and all the PR that goes into that. And then I wanted to identify resistance. So part of the book is about resistance to the war, both in the military and in the civilian society. And I just wanted to make sure people understood that the US history is a lie. It's built in a lie and it leads to wars. And in my case, it led to me being in Vietnam and Vietnam was based on lies. It was maintained by lies. And then discussing how resistance started, both in the military and civilian society. And the resistance is so necessary in a society that is basically a fake society. I mean, you know, the whole history, 400 years, is we've lived with the trick of thinking ourselves as, as exceptional after we had formed a Eurocentric society on two genocides. Never expressed any shame or regret, and therefore we created a phony I- identity of being exceptional. And that's when in Vietnam I realized, my God, being a big white man, I was 6'3, is really a disability in a serious way because the brainwashing and the privileges that go with being a white male basically make you stupid. And made me stupid, even though I was intelligent, but I was stupid. Uh, how can you possibly follow an order to go? Nine thousand miles away to to participate in destroying another people's culture. You know nothing about the culture. You know nothing about the people. They've never they've never interfered with your life. I mean, it's really astounding. I know this has been going on thousands of years, but it still struck me that since I got caught up in it, that it was almost incomprehensible how easy controlling the narrative works in people's
0: minds. Indeed. Controlling the narrative is, in fact, everything.
1: It's everything. Exactly.
0: Anyway, I hope our short conversation today can take a few blows against the dominant narrative. (laughs) I want to encourage people listening to this podcast to find Brian Wilson. It's Wilson with two L's, W-I-L-L-S-O-N. He's a writer, attorney, peace activist. Again, I mentioned the book Blood on the Tracks that came out in 2011, his latest book, Don't Thank me for my service, my Vietnam awakening to the long history of U.S. lies. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high quality news, analysis and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com/slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.